Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. It's weird, you know, you have all the, how many familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Everybody is, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, I don't think I've ever, it's weird, all the years of ministry, I don't think I've actually ever preached through this. You know, you read those stories, you go, oh, that's a cool story, that's great, and then you move on. So, I don't know, man, this is, the title of this message is, uh, in our Unstuck series, is Who Are You Believing? And uh, this is basically, we're going to be hanging out at 1 Samuel chapter 17 for the bulk of the time here, but we need to look at the surrounding scriptures. Last week we talked about Hannah, a great woman of God who gave birth to Samuel, the greatest judge and prophet next to Moses who began to uh, anoint kings. He, and uh, so this is much time, this is later. Samuel is a grown man and he's walking around doing God's business, hearing from God and he's amazing and he anoints Saul as the king. And when he does that, Saul's hiding. <laughs> he's very insecure, um, but he, he anoints him. And because of his insecurity, uh, he becomes very jealous because he wants to, all of a sudden he feels threatened by all these people around him. You know, that's what insecurity does. And and so you see this characteristics in Saul. So he's anointed as king at this time. And, but also later on, uh, Jonathan was anointed as the future king who would one day replace Saul. But that hasn't happened yet. I mean, he was anointed, but he hasn't taken that step yet. Several years went by of testing. I mean, no, it's really important to be tested before you take on a large um, assignment because you want to be mature and able to handle that assignment. And that usually doesn't happen until you've been tested. And all the cracks have been revealed and healed and all that stuff, right? Okay, that's good. Well, in 1 Samuel 17, actually for 18, um, at this time, David is still a uh, young, young guy. He's a teenager, he's youth, and he's shepherding sheep. Saul's still currently king. But in verse 18, you see this madness, this rage and jealousy towards David that comes upon Saul. I mean, he would have these fits of anger at, at, in insane proportions to the point where he would try to pin David to a wall with a spear. David would run for his life. And if you go to chapter 16, you see it again where this distress, I mean, he was so distressed he was just wound tight. And there was this derangement that would come upon him to the point where his court officials took notice and said, man, we got to find a way to calm this guy down. He's going to end up murdering David. Well, one of the Saul's servants then tells Saul that he's seen the son of Jesse, talking of David, who's skillful at playing the harp, and he's a mighty man of valor, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul sends a message to Jesse, David's dad, requesting that David be sent to him. Now, of course, David's out shepherding sheep. He's in the fields. And I wonder what's going on in Jesse's head at this point. The king wants my son. Well, obviously, everybody knows David was anointed as king. Does he, is he trying to uh, come up with some devious plan to kill my son to protect his throne? Is this what's going on? So you can imagine Jesse was quite nervous about this. Well, he goes ahead and, and obeys the king, sends his son Yet the purpose of the summons was really this, that uh, David actually became Saul's armor bearer. Saul uh, then sends message back to Jesse 
telling him that I'd like your son, I'd like David to stand with me, to remain with me. He's found favor in my sight. His music soothes my soul. I want him to remain in my court. He's found favor in Saul. And so I'm sure this brought great relief to Jesse. that He knew his son was going to be safe at this time anyway. Although this favor didn't last long because Saul continued to grow extremely jealous and threatened by David, even violent towards him, fits of rage. So he has this love-hate relationship with David. Saul, in Saul's madness, he wanted to kill him. And then when he would come back to his senses, then he would love David like his son. You can imagine the torment, the confusion, the unrest, the restlessness in the courts of the king at this time. Now, during uh, this time, of course, you know, Israel's arch enemy was the Philistines. They were always fighting, right? The Philistines, a very wicked, heathen, bloodthirsty nation, served other gods. They were, I mean, they were wicked to the core. What they would do to people is unheard of. And so you have this horrific nation, anti-God, God-haters, hating Israel, Kind of sounds familiar today, doesn't it, anyway? And then you've got Israel over here. And this conflict continues, and they're in the middle of a military crisis. And this brings us to chapter 17. And they see the, the gathering storm is happening, right? Two nations assemble on, in their battle lines facing each other. There's a face-off here, and, and they're ready to have this violent, violent uh, engagement, a fierce and bloody battle. Now, back in those times, their battles were always would result in massive casualties. I mean, you would have hand-to-hand combat with swords and spears and, and uh, you know, javelins and everything. It was brutal, right? So now, in this battle, we see something uh, that's quite abnormal. They decide to settle the conflict in a different way. Instead of having two massive armies colliding on the battlefield... The Philistine offers up a new challenge. Each army was to select one of their champions to head out to the center of the valley and to have hand-to-hand combat, battle it out. And the one who won would be the uh, nation or the army that would claim victory and the other army, the other nation would become their servants or slaves. So this was different. This is different. Now, let's be, read the first three. We're going to go through this whole chapter, so we're going to cruise light along here because there's a lot of stuff in here we need to pull out. But the first three verses, let's begin there. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soko and, and Ezekah in Ephes in Daman. And Saul, the men of Israel, were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and the Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with the valley in between them. Now, back then, uh, of course, Bible scholars have said that Israel's atmosphere was very thin, and the air is real clear, and therefore the voice, you could have a voice amplification really uh, over a mile. You could hear each other and have conversation. That kind of explains why you can have one army on this side of the valley, one army on this side of the valley, and mountains on the back side, and they could actually talk to each other without bullhorns and stuff. And that's kind of how that happened. They would communicate. So let's go to the next few verses here, 4 through 7. It says, And the champion went out from the camp of Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubics and a, and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight 
of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. A shield bearer went before him. He had one of these little armor bearers before him. You know, the kind that always cackles and laughs. <laughs> kind of one of those guys, right? Yeah, that's what he had. We're going to see his end too. But anyway, this is a huge guy, right? And we've had all kinds of speculations and arguments on how to translate the size and the weights of all this armor and weapons into our system of measurements and all that stuff. And I don't know how accurate that is, but I know this. The bottom line is this guy, he possessed what, what he possessed was fit for a very strong giant of a human. Saul, now King Saul was six foot six. He towered over most people. Goliath towered way over him. All right, so, I mean, his clothes were specially made. His armor had to be custom fit. His weapons had to be crafted for a giant of this size and strength. So Goliath is a champion of the Philistine army for good reason. He has, he's just, he has massive, powerful, he's skilled in battle. He is a hardened gladiator from his youth. He was raised on the battlefield. So he is their best guy. He is a freak, man. This guy is like freakish, huge, strong, skilled. Uh, yeah, one of those guys. So First uh, Samuel chapter 17, let's go to verse 8 and 9. It says, Then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So the challenge was very clear. He threw it down. Let's fight. Winners take all. Losers, you're going to be our slaves. Saul is under a lot of pressure at this point, if you can imagine. He's the king of Israel. Everybody is looking to him. He's also uh, one of the tallest guys that they have. Uh, he's a fighter, right? He, he knows how to do that stuff, but he does not want to get in the ring with this giant. He's like, you know, he reminds me of the guy who went mountain climbing. He's up on the really high up there, and he slips and he falls almost to his death, and he grabs a hold of a little branch, and he's just dangling there, and he looks down. It's 5,000 feet down, right? And this branch is barely hanging on, and so he doesn't know what to do. He's in a panic. He looks around and he looks up to heaven and cries out one of those faith prayers and says, is there anybody up there that can help me? And this booming voice actually came from heaven and said, I will help you. Have faith in me. Just let go of the branch and I'll catch you. Well, the guy looked around again, the sesty situation and looked back up to heaven and said, is there anybody else who can help me? <laughs> I think that's how Saul was. He was looking around. He thought, I'm not getting, he's not going to take the plunge. No way I'm getting in the valley. No way. And is there anybody else kind of hoping and praying, right? Something's going to happen. Somebody will pull through. Well, let's go to verse 10 and 11. It says, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is a whole army, dismayed and greatly afraid. So this is the setting of this massive crisis in Israel that they're facing, a serious crisis.
crisis. And you see in verse 16, I want to jump up there and we'll read this. Look, it says, the Philistines drew near and pressed, presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. 40 days, morning and evening. This just wasn't one afternoon. This giant steps on the field and says, you bunch of dogs, send me your best guy. And David shows up and says, here I am to save the day. No, it wasn't like that. We're talking 40 days, morning and night. That's 80 times. 40 days. You know what flooded and rained on the earth for 40 days? You know, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days under the temptation of the adversary. It gives you this picture of this ominous pressure and, and torment and darkness and storms gathering and deluge of wickedness and press, press, press. 40 days, the stress. That's a long time. It says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And they hid, and this would just embolden the giant. Each day, the soldiers of Israel had to listen to this berating, this this, this uh, mockery and wrestle with their fears and their sense of shame and cowardness. And he would just rub it in their face, just went on and on. How do you think, you know, 40 days is a long time. Twice a day. Every day they waited for Saul to do something. Stop the torment. Come on, make a decision. Get us out of this dress trap. Can you imagine the pressure that the king must have been under? Every day having to face his own soldiers who are cowering in fear. And yet this heathen is mocking them morning and night. Every morning, here comes Goliath. Any cowards out there ready to face me? Come on, you mad enough to fight me? You and your God, you're, you're dogs to me. I curse you by my gods. Come on out here, you cowards. And it just, he would foul and curse and wicked. Prove to me you're not a coward. And it just went on. And Goliath would go back, come back out in the evening and do the same thing again. Then he would go back to his camp, you know, through the day, through the night, play cards, whatever they would do. He was enjoying it. He was savoring every moment. He knew that every day he went out there, the stronger he got and the weaker they got. Gloating and chest-thumping, reviling and cursing, slandering and taunting. Verse 17 and 18, let's continue, because the scene, the scene shifts now. Now we're looking at uh, back home on the home front with David and his dad. So then Jesse said to his son David, Now, take for your brothers an ephah of this dry grain and these ten loaves. And run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands. And see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So Jesse tells David, I want you to go check on your brothers. Take some bread and cheese. So David's like basically the pizza delivery boy. He's like, all right, I'm taking some extra large cheese pizzas. I'm going to let you know how they're doing. I'll check back with you later, Dad, and see how, see how the family's doing. So verse 20, 22, here he is. So, so David rose early in the morning. He left his sheep at the keeper. And he took the things and went to Jesse and commanded him. Uh, 
It says, he came to the camp as the enemy was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle army array and army against the army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came to greet his brothers. Now, while David's visiting, out comes Goliath. Okay, this is his first exposure to this whole scene. And David gets to hear firsthand what these guys have been putting up with for a long time. Now, these, these are David's older brothers. Now, I don't know if it's you, but I think you kind of look up to your little older brothers, don't you? I mean, when you're on the playground and the bullies come start messing with you, you're like, hey, man, you better, you better watch out because I'll get my older brother, you know? I remember my older brother, he was two and a half years older than me, and he was always bigger and stronger. And <laughs> when I got to school, he was, everybody knew who John was, my brother, and they called me Little John. <laughs> it's like, Little John? That was, I was, everybody, they all called me, all these old guys, hey, there's Little John. Don't mess with him because he's got, you know, they who John. And uh, anyway, so I was kind of happy to, in the setting I went into at the time when my brother was quite wiry and strong and, and quite athletic. And he was, <laughs> he, just being in his shadow protected me in a sense. But uh, here he is. He's in the presence of his older brothers. And uh, uh, Dave is probably thinking, man, these are my guys. These are my brothers, man. I'm kind of cool being around them, you know, and this is the army. You know, one day I'm going to get in the army. I'm going to join the army just like my brothers, you know, and I'm going to be a soldier like my big brothers, right? And so here's David. He's delivering pizza light, and he's watching sheep all day, and, and he's talking to his big brothers. He's probably all proud of them and kind of thinking, you know, all the guys are looking at me because I'm with my brothers, you know, and they, they probably think, oh, there's David. Well, those are, yeah, that's pretty cool. Good. He's in good company, and he's feeling pretty important right now. And all of a sudden, Goliath appears on the field, and David hears all this. Verse 23 and 25. Then, as he talked with them, there was a champion, the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when he saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you not seen this man who has come up? They're talking to David now. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches and give him his daughter and give the king's, and, and the father's house will be exempt from all the taxes of Israel. Wow. Everybody's saying, man, you've seen this guy. But if someone kills him, untold riches will be his. Great wealth, and he'll get the king's daughter and he'll be part of the kingdom. Wow, that's amazing. But nobody was willing to step up. But it must have been quite intimidating. David, again, he's just a kid, a teenager. He's in his youth. And so he pipes up and he's speaking to these men that are kind of around him. And, you know, they're talking. And, and verse 26, David spoke to the men. He couldn't hold back anymore. He's like first exposure. And he says, what shall, be, what shall be done for the man who kills Philistine, this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is just like undone. He could care less about all the bounty that you could get for Goliath's head and all the wealth he could garner from defeating this giant. He's just undone. He can't believe that this army, his big brothers, I mean, this is... You can see the, this, this sense of purity in David's heart, this reckless faith, this, uh, 
I mean, he is just offended. He is utterly, truly, purely offended for all the right reasons. I mean, this guy's mocking his brothers, whom he loves, looks up to. The army he would serve in one day, the nation he loved, the God he feared, everything that he had around him, looked up to, possessed, was being trampled on by this heathen, cursed and mocked. He's like, how can this be? He just can't, he just can't get it. He doesn't get it. How can these people just sit by and allow this to happen? Who are these people who would defy the armies of the living God? David was undone and so in verse I love what it says in Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Boy, that's, if anybody was, that's David right there. 1 Samuel, let's look at verse 27 and 28 now. He's outraged by this reproach. And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, And Eliah's anger rose against David, was aroused, and he he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and insolence of heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now David's questioning them presses some buttons, right? David's like, are we all cowards here? They didn't like that a bit. They got a little defensive, and so his brother calls him out. Who do you think you are, you little kid? Get back to your sheep. Leave this matter in the real man's hands, right? And so this is about to become David's greatest moment in his military conflict. Verse 29, it says, and David said, what have I done? Is there not a cause? I mean, he's outraged. He's like, isn't isn't there a cause here? Isn't there something worth living for, fighting for, and dying for? He's outraged. He can't stand the thought of this going on. Is there something worth fighting for? This, This reminds me of the early church, you know? The disciples and the martyrs down through the corridors of history that were uh, strung up and fed the wild beasts and tortured and crucified and stoned and heads cut off and boiled in oil and every horrible thing you could have imagined. I think what they would say was they would stand there and say, is there not a cause? And they laid their lives down for the gospel. And you could see that all the way down. It's even happening to this very day in places like North Korea and Iran and China and these places where people are literally standing there and giving their lives, and what they're saying is, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? David's understanding that God's honor is at stake here. He says, this is our God we serve. Is there not a cause? Verse 30, David turns around and he looks at the rest of the people and he says the same thing, and the people answered, First one did. No one saw a cause to get involved. No one, they had lost everything drained out. They had lost their conviction. They'd lost the fear of God. They've lost everything in the face of intimidation. I really believe that's one of the hell's greatest tactics of today. He functions through fear and lies. 
and he will, he will approach people, believers, and he'll push and he'll shove and he'll mock and everything drains out of us. All the courage, all the sense of risk, all that pure faith that we started with, that sense of zeal and hell, just like Revelation says, he comes to wear down the saints and everything drains out. Every soldier in the camp resolved to themselves I'm not going to die in this situation. They've lost something. It's really shocking. But in the day of Israel, there was only one person who was willing to take a stand. He says, this is a cause worth fighting for, yes, and even dying for. Verse 31, 32 says, Now when the wor words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, No, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. David says, Look, king, oh king, don't the, the hearts of your soldiers have melted because of this Philistine. Everything has drained out of their lives. They got nothing left simply because of this mockery. And he says, Please, king, don't let this happen anymore. I'll take the I'll go fight. I'll do it. And Saul's thinking, <laughs> he's wondering with this kid, you know, can you imagine what's going on in Saul's mind? You want to get in the ring with this freakish, giant, gladiator, murderous, bloodthirsty animal? You want to get in that? You want to, you poor, misguided, inexperienced kid who thinks he could conquer the world. So idealistic. You have no idea what you're dealing with. You are so far out of your league. Can you imagine this kid? I mean, Saul's got to be half the height of him. I love this. The, you, know, I, you know what I love? <laughs> I love the faith, the fire, the zeal of brand new Christians that encounter Jesus and their world is just rocked. And they all of a sudden have this newfound courage, this God, they, they just got the Spirit of God in them for the first time, which is resurrection power. And let me tell you, when you've been dead, Jesus came to make dead people live. Let me tell you, that'll rock your world. That'll rock your world. And after you remember your first time you got saved, you're like, wow. Woo, woo, what's going on? What is that I'm sensing? I have never had this kind of peace, but at the same time, man, I'm excited. Woo, you know, it just takes over. It's so shocking and so new and so fresh and so powerful. And you're just like, wow. You know, they, they get, and you got gut, you know, you see some of these, especially these young people, these God-sized dreams, right? They're just, they're just aspirations that are like out there. And you're kind of like going, oh, if you only knew, because we, you know, we know everything, right? We, we have been around the block a few times, so we know, young person, that, you know, we know you're still untested and, you know, but they don't care. It's like the challenges of life, they're like, it's not a cause? Huh? I mean, yeah, they got a lot to learn. I get it. But in their passion, in their sense of reckless abandonment, right, it's, it can be so refreshing 
I think I'd rather partner with that than those who are too afraid to stick their head up out of a foxhole because, well, I don't know if I can do this. I might make a mistake. Um, I don't think, y'all have been thinking about this, I really don't think we need to be telling our young people they're too young and they need to wait until they get a little older and, you know, garner some more experience before they try whatever they're thinking, <laughs> right? Before they rock the boat too much. Maybe, maybe they are too young. Um, but I tell you what, I know no greater life lessons than, than failures and mistakes and trials and errors. I, I, I just think those are, that's a great school. Um, and I think we need those individuals with that kind of audacious faith that just said, just let me add it. <laughs> you, you're trying to hold it back because, oh, come on. There's young visionaries, I believe, even among us that God has placed here. And God's going to use them mightily. I believe that. And I think we need to let them fly. I think we need to let the horses out of the barn and let them run. Are you with me on that? You know, you've probably heard about the Asbury College revival that's going on for several days now. Quite remarkable. It's spreading to other colleges. Really powerful. But it's the young people. Do you know that over 90% of the revivals that have happened down through history, the young people were the first responders? They were the ones who responded first and were ignited and first moved upon? Shouldn't we stop and go, okay, God, do you know something we don't? How come always young people always respond first? What's going on, God? You, you're pretty smart. Yeah, he found a group of people that I guess don't really have any limitations where they're at, and they're pretty excited about what could happen, the possibilities. There's no barriers, no limitations, no religious structures that have been built up over the years. Uh, you know, sometimes we get older and we, yeah, yeah, young visionaries, they're great. They need some coaching, I get it. They need some instruction and guidance, but we got to let them run and, and don't keep them in a the barn waiting Till when we decide that they, they're fit for the battle. Um, I tell you, when I was a youth pastor, <laughs> I was a lot younger, believe me. There were some crazy things I really did for God, and I learned a whole lot. And some of them were wildly successful, and some of them were colossal failures. But I believe I'm a better person now because I just did it. I, I think what happens is, doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to a lot of people. The older we get, our courage seems to diminish as we settle in to a real safe place. It's comfortable. I like comfort. I, I, you know, I was reflecting when I knew when God called me into full-time vocational ministry. I was working for BP, and I, I had my plans, what I was going to do. And then God wrecked all that. He just turned everything upside down. And I've often thought, you know, if I knew at that moment some of the stuff I was going to have to go through and deal with, and ministry and some of the difficult places and some of the really tough spots, if I knew all that, I probably wouldn't have said, yes, God. I probably said, you know what? You can let somebody else take care of that. I'll just do what I'm doing. But I didn't know about any of that stuff. 
God kept me in the dark. And, and he harnessed my zeal and brought me through all that and grew me through it. Because that's usually how he does it. Do you think David, if he would have known when he was going to be anointed king that he was going to have to run for his life many years, hiding in caves from the king, trying to kill him, murder him, snuff his Do you think that he would have said, yeah, I'm in, I'm all in? He didn't know about any of that stuff. But I think God takes advantage of our youthful zeal at times. When we just don't call, again, we don't got the big picture, and God says, that's okay, we'll keep it that way. Otherwise, I don't think they're going to. And, and then he takes us forward. Oh, we need to let our young people run. Well, you got to give Saul, I think King Saul, a little bit of credit here because entertaining the idea that he's going to let David step out. You know, your faith is contagious. Don't ever forget that. It's very contagious. Verse 23 and 26, Saul looks to David and he says, you're not able to fight this giant Philistine. Um, I'm not to jump forward just for the sake of time. He says, you're a youth. He says, this man, this giant, he's been, on the, he's been at war from his youth. He's been trained up in war. And David says to Saul, well, look, your servant used to keep your father's sheep. And when the lion and the bear would come out, he took the lion or he took the lamb out of the, out of the flock and uh, he would go out and he would strike it down. He delivered the lion or the lamb from the mouth, from its mouth. And when it rose up against him, he says, I caught it by the beard and I struck it and killed it. Your servant killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, you know, he'll be like one of them, seeing that he has defiled the armies of the living God. Now, I don't know what's going on in King Saul's head when he's listening to this. He's probably going, a bit of exaggeration. I don't know. I'm sure it happened. But you know how it is. Man, the other day I went fishing. Caught a fish that big. Next time we tell the story, yeah, I went fishing the other day, and <laughs> wow, it was that big, you know. <laughs> and, and every time we tell the story, the fish just get bigger and bigger pretty soon, you, you know. But I don't know. Maybe King Saul's thinking, mm, is this story being a belly? I don't, you know, I don't know if he's... It's one, but, but it's one thing to kill an animal, but you're going to be facing this accomplished gladiator, a freakish huge size, this giant, this, this, this massive weapons. Reminds me of Shark Tank. You know Mr. Wonderful and Shark Tank? His famous line is this. They will crush you like the cockroach that you are. And that's kind of what you feel like. He's trying to tell him, you know, you're just a cockroach. Verse 37 says, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So David affirms, he says, look, I know I can't do this. It's God who's going to have to do this. I'm not, I'm not that naive, Saul. Really, I'm not. But the Lord's going to take care of this giant. You see, this, this faith is just this, like, Saul just kind of scratches his head. He's like, what kind of faith is this? Who is this kid? Where, where is this coming from? Because he's never walked in that. He's been coward. He's been... He was afraid when he was going to get anointed. He was hiding behind the barrels. And all of a sudden, this kid comes up with this audacious faith. Verse 37, and Saul, Saul finally changes his tune. He says, all right, David, you go and the Lord will be with you. Go ahead, fight him. God will be with you. But let me at least get you armored up. So Saul gives David his armor. Now, I don't know what the motive behind that was. Obviously, Saul knew his armor wasn't going to fit him. I mean, I remember our little girls used to play dress up. They put on these giant dresses, you know, floppy shoes and hats, and they're flumbling around. They can't move, you know. I mean, he, 
What, what was he trying to communicate, David? My armor is in you. You're unfit for the armor. You're unfit for this battle. Nothing is fit for you on this field. Didn't intimidate him. David took the armor off. Verse 40, he goes out and gets a staff in his hand and chooses for him some small, smooth stones from the brook, put them in the shepherd's bag and the pouch which he had, and the sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. These weren't pebbles. These were like small baseballs. And when you put those in a sling of a sling of somebody who was very experienced, like David, I mean, they could hit, you know, what do they say, a frog's hair on the nose of a, whatever. But anyway, and they were deadly accurate and lethal, lethal. And he's got his sling in his hand and David moves towards Goliath and he approaches him. And this little squeaky armor bearer in front of Saul, our Goliath, that's going, one of those guys. And 43, it says, so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You know what we call that? We call that trash talking. That's what's going on out there. How many have been trash talked by the devil? You come to me with that. Why don't you go back to your little corner? You don't belong on the field. You're not a fighter. You're not a warrior. Oh, he trash talked. He tries to strip us and cause things to drain out. And okay, now here it is. Goliath insults him. He sees no armor, no shield, no sword, nothing. He just sees a kid with a stick and a, and a little sling. In verse 45 and 47, David fires right back. He says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day, David's taking a step further. Now he's going after the army. He said, I will give the carcasses of the camp of Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all that the earth may know that the Lord is God of Israel. And then all this, all this assembly, there shall no... I'm getting excited here. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not say by sword or spear, but the battle belongs to the Lord. He will give you into my hands. Can you see God at this point kind of sitting up going... That's my boy. Come on, you tell him. And the angels are like, you know, they're all hovering around. You got this massive, you know, if you can see in the spirit realm, you got this massive, you know, spectating going on in the heavens, right? This is a big deal. David just looks at it and says, you defile my God. Today, Goliath, you die. And I'm going to take your head. And then David runs to the fight. He runs, and he grabs that stone out of his pouch, throws it in his, and he starts, woof, woof, woof. And when he lets that thing go, you don't really see this, but there's an angel in mid-flight that grabs a hold of that stone, gives it an extra oomph, right? And it knocks Goliath right in the center of that vulnerable spot, cracks his head, and he kind of stands there in the daze, and he falls forward. Lands on top of his armor bearer. Splat. Takes them both down. I don't know if that happened, but it sounds good. <laughs> and it says, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. 
But there was no sword in David's hand. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took the sword, drew it out of its sheath to kill Goliath and cut off his head. Can you see, can you see David at this point? The sword's got to be this big. And he's, he's trying to lift this thing and he's... And he takes his hat off and his head rolls to the side, completely decapitates Goliath. And Israel's army, they're on the other side watching this, and the Philistines are watching it. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that place, except for the, the vulture flying over, circling. And they look up, and they look at David, and they see him picking up his head. And when he goes, I mean, the armies of Israel rose and began to flood the valley towards the Philistines, and they panicked, and they ran for their lives. And they overtook them, the Bible says, and they cut them down. And then they went back and plundered their tents. And David takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. And then he takes Goliath's armor and puts it in his tent. Because the Lord God fought that day. He says, you come to me with a spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord. The enemy comes to us not with a spear, but he comes to us with lies. Anytime the devil speaks, he lies. The Bible says he's a father of lies, and when he opens his mouth, he does nothing but lie. He speaks his native language. And every day, you and I have to face the liar who comes at us. But Colossians chapter 2 says, God, Jesus, through the cross, disarmed the powers and principalities, made a public spectacle of them, he canceled every written code, every word, every curse that was against us through the cross. Therefore, you and I have full authority to stand on the truth and to stand from that place of victory and fight from that place, call down those lies and live in that place and march in that place. And, live. and we have to say at some point, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Oh, the worship team come out. Yeah, David said, you come to me with a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And we stand there and we say, hell, you come to me with your lies, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. You know what I love hearing about? And I've heard so many of these testimonies down through the past years of, of little girls who grew up in toxic environments and were abused and battered and hurt. And, and so... They latched on to somebody who took notice of them, who was an abuser. And they, they, they take this path into addiction to numb the pain. And, you know, they have kids and their life is a mess and some end up in jail and some end up here. And, but one day Jesus walks into their life and they get born again. Hope comes into their heart. And something in them stops and says, Is there not a cause? And you know what they do? They start marching forward in their freedom. And they start addressing every lie of hell that has punched and kicked them and kept them down. And then they start getting really fired up and they get their kids back one by one. And they stare down those giants and they say, is there not a cause? I have seen so many people down through the ages. You know, everybody from addicts to whatever. And, and something at some point, 
you've got to face the giants and the lies and the hell, and you've got to say, no more. Is there not a cause? Isn't there something to live for and to fight for? Can we stand together? Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.